Good morning. My name is Liza, and if you are able, please join me in standing in honor of the reading of God's word. Today's uh, scripture passage comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 38. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats, and at this time our students are dismissed to their classes. And I'm just going to warn you now that this is a different kind of service as a, it is a baptism service. So we are going to bring them back in at the end to witness the baptism. So it's going to get nice and tight in here again. And I just didn't want you to be um, surprised about that. Uh, if you're just joining us um, because one of your family members or close friends is being baptized, special welcome to you. Um, this is all, uh, always an exciting event to see people publicly declaring their faith in Christ through the rite of baptism. You'll notice it's a little bit different than we've done in the past. We do have a baptismal up here, um, but it's far away. Oftentimes you can barely see the heads of the kids who are getting baptized. And we have an abnormally tall drummer, and so we had to raise the, the drum uh, cage a little bit. So we're bringing it into the congregation this morning up here. So it'll be pretty, I think it'll be pretty cool. So we're going to prepare for um, our baptism uh, this morning by a teaching on baptism, which is what I'm going to do. Why do we do it? How important is it? So that we understand what we're about to witness. Uh, but before we do, let's pause and, and pray. Father, we exalt you and extol you. We extol your holy name as a name above every name, as a name before whom all nations will one day bow and confess that Jesus is in fact Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify your people, that we would live for you, trust you, obey you, submit to you, hope in you, find our joy in you. 
Father, we pause also to just pray for the Buyi people that we've been praying for this month for the last, I don't know how many years, over in China, that you would continue your work of spreading the gospel, building your church, and bringing those who are lost to see and to be found and to experience the wonder of what it means to know Christ. Father, we pray that you'd educate our minds, but also inspire our hearts this morning through the teaching of your word and through the testimonies that we will hear of people who have uh, wanted to submit themselves to this ancient rite of baptism. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I miss, I've said something along these lines before, but I miss the dating phase of life about as much as I miss migraine headaches, which... <laughs> If you don't know what that means, I hated that phase of life. It's enormously awkward. You see somebody that you're mildly interested in, and you try and concoct, strategize, how can I possibly get into a conversation with that person in a way that doesn't put them off or come off too strong? And if you happen to, you know, finagle a conversation and there's a little spark and a little interest, um, well, then you've got to ask yourself, well, how much conversation, how many times do I call, too much, not enough? It's just enormously awkward. And then, as you begin to realize we're, we, we like each other, we're interested in each other, then it's a question of how much time, and then you can start to spend days and evenings together. And, but there's this point in any, like, tap dance of love <laughs> where you want to clarify the nature of the relationship. That is, you want to know, are we like, is it just you and me right now in this dating relationship or is this, is this open? Now, back in my day, it wasn't unheard of to hear a guy ask a girl, you want to go steady, right? That is such a stupid thing to say. <laughs> like, why not just say, hey, could this be exclusive? I think I first heard that on that wondrously virtuous family-friendly show called Happy Days which I wasn't allowed to watch, but I watched it anyway. But you have to have that point where you kind of formalize the relationship. Like, are, we're taking this to the next level. Of course, the ultimate formalization of a relationship between a man and a woman is, a, is marriage. We need to formalize things to understand the status and nature of a relationship. That explains why, you know, when you become a law enforcement officer, you have to swear an oath at the very beginning. It formalizes, galvanizes, and publicizes your commitment. Uh, the same thing is true when you go in the military. You stand in a little room with a bunch of other people with long hair, and you raise your hand and swear to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That initiates, formalizes your commitment to defend the United States. It used to be you could formalize a, a financial contract by a shake of a hand and a verbal proclamation. Of course, those days are long gone. Now you have to sign a written legal document. Well, we have in Christianity a formalizing rite, or call it an ordinance, or sacrament, rightly defined. It basically says to you and to everybody else that I am devoting my life to Christ. I embrace his work on Good Friday and Easter morning, his death and his resurrection for me. And I'm telling everybody now, I am a follower of Christ. And that initiation rite is baptism. It says in no uncertain terms the status of your relationship with Jesus, like saying, I do at an altar. I do. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Savior. So what we're about to witness is the formalization, the galvanization, and the 
publication of the fact that they have given their lives completely and utterly to Christ. That is the ordinance that Jesus gave us as the beginning right that is to formalize our relationship with him. So with that said, I want to spend a few minutes just talking about what that is along three lines. Um, The practice of baptism, the importance of baptism, and then also the application of baptism. And somewhere in the middle there, people are going to get up and leave because they're going to get baptized. So don't be amazed that, oh my gosh, half the congregation left. Dan said something horrible, all right? That's preparing you. This is a different kind of service. And maybe they do leave because I say something horrible. I don't know. Well, this little, the first part, the practice of baptism, there's this unique, vivid, wonderful little story that was just read of Acts chapter 8, where Philip, a preacher, is... And it's amazing for a number of reasons. There's this unique convergence of divine guidance and divine providence coming together to rescue an Ethiopian man. So you have Philip, directed by an angel, and he's a preacher, directed to head south into the desert towards Gaza. And he does. He's going down the road, and he sees this chariot with an Ethiopian man, and he just happens to be reading aloud. And the spirit directs him, says, you need to go talk to this man. So he runs, right? And it just so happens as he meets this Ethiopian, the Ethiopian is is reading of all prophets, of all books in the Bible, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And it's not just Isaiah, he's reading a particular chapter in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a big book. It's 66 chapters. What are the chances that this Ethiopian would be sitting in his chariot as it's moving along, reading the 53rd chapter, which is the most vivid depiction some 700 years ahead of time of the crucifixion of Jesus? Like, on him, the singular, was laid the iniquity of us all. Uh, Or, by his stripes we are healed, or he was crushed as a sin offering. That's Isaiah 53. So, This Ethiopian just happens to be reading the most vivid account of what would happen to Jesus, the one paying for the sins of the many. And so Philip comes along and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone explain it to me? Which is just a reminder that people do need the Bible explained to them. And then Philip answers his question. He says, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? Like, who's the one on whom the iniquities of us all have been laid so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God? Um, About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's like, this is fulfilled. The sacrifice has been made. The iniquities of all God's people have been laid on the one and paid for completely. So this, and it doesn't say it explicitly, but the the context demands it. He believes. He believes. And as a result, as they're going along in the chariot, you can imagine them talking, someone else is driving. Um, He says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is a remarkable story of a man coming to faith, and then to mark that coming to faith, they get baptized. Now, let me draw out five uh, observations. They'll be short about 
the practice of baptism here in this passage. Not everyone's going to agree with everything I say, but I'm persuaded it is true. So if you're not, check it out. Consider this a, a challenge. First, baptism is, was for everyone, is for everyone who placed their faith in Jesus. The gospel had already broken through barriers that weren't normal. Um, earlier in chapter 8, the gospel broke through to the Samaritans, which were considered like, sub-Jewish, and they came to faith. And now here at the end of chapter 8, the gospel breaks through another barrier, and here we have an Ethiopian man who is coming to faith and will be baptized. Now, this isn't really striking to us. It's just another story. But if you thought like a Jew in the, in the first century, you'd, you'd, you'd be conditioned to think that to be part of the family of God, one, if you're a male, you have to be circumcised. Two, you should be Jewish or convert to be a Jew. None of that is true here. Here's this man coming to faith, being baptized, initiated into the covenant family of God, who is an Ethiopian. Again, paving the road for the fact that the gospel is for all, and all who believe enter into the family by way of baptism. Notice how, how he's described. He's an Ethiopian. Get out your map or your globe, and you realize that's in Africa. This convert was from Africa. The early church had no problem with skin color. And on rare occasion, only on rare occasion, is skin ever, color ever mentioned. Just not an issue. So one of the first converts outside the Jewish and Samaritan was an African. He was a eunuch. If you don't know what that is, you can look that up on your, on your own. I am not going to tell you what that is, but it means you had certain things cut off. Okay, enough said. He's also a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So he's a man of tremendous standing, position, and authority. So much so that he was in charge of all her treasure. He's the treasurer of her wealth. Again, it's for, for everyone. Sometimes we think baptism's great for young children, like watching a junior high graduation. Oh, isn't that cute? No, it's for rich men and poor men, men of high standing and low standing, for men, women, uh, Africans, Americans, that kind of flows, flows together, everybody. So that's first observation, that baptism is for everyone who has faith in Christ. It's how you show, display that I am entering into this great family of God too. Baptism was conducted after the choice to believe in Jesus. That's the flow. As he hears the gospel, the Ethiopian hears the gospel, responds in faith, and then is baptized. Which means baptism was the result of a choice to believe. Now, we all know that there are some who baptize infants. And I'm going to be careful here. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is you won't find in the New Testament, you will not find the baptism of an infant explicitly stated. Nowhere. You'll, you'll, you'll live a thousand years combing through the pages of the New Testament, you'll never find it. At best, you have the implication by way of household baptism. So, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians says that he baptized the house of Stephanus or the household of Stephanus. Well, someone might say, well, then there were infants. It's like, well, that may be true, may not be true. There could have been grown children. We don't know. So it's just simply not explicit. But the preponderance or every time you find baptism 
done in the New Testament. It's somebody who's come to faith and made a decision of faith and then got baptized as an initiation rite into the family of God. Now, if you happen to be convinced, and I have friends who are, uh, that baptism of infants is, is, is right, and most people who believe that make a parallel between circumcision, which is done to eight-day-old males, a.k.a. infants, and baptism, and there are parallels, but there are also differences, and also different understandings of what it means to be part of a covenant community. Um, if you happen to hold to that view, and you don't believe baptism saves you, hopefully we can still sing Amazing Grace next to each other, because it should not be a dividing line. So, baptism was for everyone, it's for those who believe, and baptism was also by immersion in water. You'll notice, verse 38, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then when they had come up out of the water. Now, they're in a chariot driving through the desert. It would have been a given that they would have had vessels filled with water. Nobody goes into the desert without vessels filled with water. So had sprinkling been the uh, mode of baptism back in the day, they could have just opened a canteen and I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't. They wait until they come to a place, probably one of the springs on the way to Gaza, where there's enough water where they can do baptism. And it fits what it symbolizes. I mean, it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To go all the, all the way into the water is like going all the way into the grave and then back out again. Again, if you happen to believe that sprinkling or the cupping of water over someone's head is sufficient and you don't believe it saves you, hopefully we can still have banana bread at the next potluck. I'm not going to make it a, a big issue, but you find that the, the, the practice was, in fact, baptism by immersion. That's even the, the language here. They went into the water, came up out of the water. However, I will say this. We, um, we have had occasions when we've had an individual who who had medical complications that precluded him from being submersed. Well, we're going to live by the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law at that moment, so we just took jugs of water and baptized him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was great. I think the Lord acknowledges that, receives that. Fourth, baptism was performed by recognized church leaders. Philip was recognized in chapter 6 of Acts, verse 7. Most of the people you find doing baptisms or Apollos and Cephas and Paul. Jesus, of course, did it. But does that mean that you have to be a pastor, elder, or deacon to baptize somebody? There are a lot of leaders in a church that don't have an official title. Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, fathers who have shown their leadership in their family by the way they live, or mothers who show leadership to their family by the way they live in their commitment. And so we have answered that question. It is appropriate for us to have recognized Christians who have displayed character and devotion to baptize others. And so you're going to see that this morning. And fifth observation, baptism was not restricted to the church building in this passage. They didn't have church buildings back then. They met in homes. So they didn't have baptismals. That, that came later in history. That meant that you could baptize in a pool, a spring, a river, 
hot tub? And I say that because it's not where that matters. So if you have an ambivalence or kind of reluctance to get baptized because it's in a church and you don't want 400 people looking at you and you don't want it live streamed all over America, um, guess what? We'll find a place. My, my oldest got baptized in the Jordan. My youngest got baptized up in a mountain reservoir. And my daughter got married, baptized right here. So if there's an issue, we'll find a place. I baptized someone not too long ago in the San Francisco Bay in that 52-degree water, water. Let me just say, if you want to get baptized there, you ask Adam to do it. <laughs> I ain't doing that again, baby. And there's sharks in the water. Okay, so... With that said, and that's the longest piece, there's just two more small parts to this. And at this point, I'm going to ask those who are being baptized to go ahead and exit and go get ready. We're going to discuss the importance of baptism. The importance of baptism. Everybody good? Okay, awesome. How important is it for us to go through this as believers? Listen, the church for the last 2,000 years has differed on mode and timing of baptism, but one thing the church was crystal clear on was that baptism itself is important. One of the things that baptism does is it connects us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like, the core of our faith boils down to an event that happened on Friday and Sunday. Death, atonement, redemption, and resurrection, life, hope, that's the core of our faith. And baptism connects us to that, those two core things of death and life, which by itself should tell you this is really important. So Paul would argue in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by, uh, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from, uh, from, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's such a union between us and Jesus. When you come to faith, his death becomes your death. The old person you used to be was nailed to the cross in him. And now you're also connected and unified to his resurrection life which you're starting to, if you come to faith, you've started to experience new life. And baptism is a way of formalizing that, galvanizing it and publicizing it. I am a new person because of what Christ has done. So it connects us to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That makes it pretty important. Two, um, baptism is intimately tied to faith. So much so that sometimes the word baptism is used as shorthand for faith. So, for example, Acts chapter 2, the people want to know, how can we be saved? And Peter responds, repent, and one would expect him to say, and believe. But he doesn't. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can take that too far. At the one end, there are those who hold to a theology that baptism actually saves you. It actually regenerates you and washes you of Adam's sin. That is, without it, you're toast. So you better get baptized. The problem with that, however, 
is that we believe we're saved by the works of Christ, not the work of baptism. It's not Christ plus baptism. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not Christ plus baptism. There's no part of it that we play that makes it somehow Jesus plus. On the other hand, then, you have extreme. This is also a negative, flawed extreme. People who say, I don't, if I don't have to get baptized, if baptism isn't required for salvation, then well, it's not that important. It's optional. Maybe I shouldn't do it. I don't like the crowds. I don't like cold, cold water. <laughs> that, too, is a complete diminishing of the importance of this formalizing right that Jesus commanded us to do. It would be like first century, in my opinion, the idea of an unbaptized Christian would be about as foreign as like a fish without fins, wind without air, or a marriage without a wedding. Imagine meeting a couple. You can tell they're in love, and you ask them the question, are you married? And they say, why, yes, we are. And you say, well, how long have you been married? And they say, we're not really sure. Like, wait, what do you mean you're not really sure? When did you get married? They're like, well, we, there is no when. We just fell in love and started living with each other and just kind of decided along the way, you want to be married? Yeah, I want to be married. Oh, that's great. It's like, wait, you mean there's no exchanging of solemn vows where you say till death do us part? There's no rings that are exchanged as a symbol of the vows that you made that are supposed to carry you to the end of life? Like, the, the whole rite of the wedding is massively important in bringing these two people into covenant. In the same way, baptism is, you know, seals the ultimate relationship that we have with Jesus. It is intimately tied to our faith, making it important. And last of these is just simply, it, it, baptism's commanded by Jesus and the apostles, as referenced here in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. If I'm going to call Jesus Lord... It seems to me that implies submission to his commands. So it's important. So listen, the short of it is, if you're a believer in Christ and you've never been baptized, guess what? You have some work to do. <laughs> we'll have another one. You can like, I want to go, right? It is important. So they practiced it. It was important. And finally, just the application of it. You might say to me, I've been baptized like for 20 years, Dan. So this, this, this little teaching has nothing to do with me. And that's where I think you're wrong. Baptism reminds us of who we aren't and who we are. In the same passage, Paul talks about us being connected with the death and resurrection of Jesus through baptism. He says this, Let not sin, therefore, reign, present tense, in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. In other words, it's a reminder, oh, the old Dan that was sin-dominated and selfish has been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. There may be influence of that old man in the form of a, a ghost of who I was before so that I still struggle with sin. But to be reminded, I live now in the freedom and the light of resurrection. And baptism reminds you of those two things. I'm not supposed to live in the old man. I'm supposed to live in the new. So it has enduring application in the same way that your marriage vows. You look back and go, wait a second. 
I vowed, so I'm not an open-range man anymore. I'm tied to one. So with that said, um, we are going to have our student come back in. And if you have preschool or nursery children, I want you to go back and get them because we want to experience this as a family, as a whole. So, with that said, I am going to turn this over to Pastor Adam, wherever he might be. There. there he is. You're up. <laughs> 